vocal expression of the body of Christ and worshiping you together and sitting under the teaching of your word together and fellowshipping together as a community, as, as the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we're thankful that you have made that possible. Lord, we're thankful that you didn't call us uh, to be alone, but you called us to be together. And we take great uh, comfort and we are encouraged by one another. We're strengthened by one another and by being able to be together. And so this morning as we're together, Lord, we're, we're excited and we're encouraged. And, uh, but Lord, we together, all of us, confess that we need you. We need you even now. That uh, We ask that you would uh, send your spirit in a very special way in this place, uh, that you would bar, ban distraction from our minds, from our midst. I pray that you would help us to focus on your word, focus on what you have to say to us. I pray that your spirit would calm our hearts and make us attentive, would open our eyes and our hearts to what you have to say. Lord, we trust you and we need you and we look for you and we wait for you in this time. Father, I pray that your word would do its power, would do its work in our lives, even this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I, uh, when I first became a Christian back in high school, right before I graduated high school, I was told right off the bat by some very faithful people that I needed to go to discipleship group, which was meeting on Wednesday nights. That was Thursday nights. I think it was Thursday nights. So I was told I needed to go to discipleship group. Well, here I was a completely unchurched kid. I didn't even know that word. What in the world is discipleship? I had no idea. And so I, you know, they were telling me it was good for me. It's something that I needed. It was uh, going to be good for my Christian life and help me to grow. But I didn't have any idea what discipleship was. And so I went and I eventually did learn uh, what it meant. But that's a word we don't really use. And so because of that, we have spent a large portion of this summer when, when we've not had missionaries here, we've spent a large portion of this summer talking about discipleship, what it means um, and you know, we've, we've dug it out from the Bible and applied it in different aspects of life to see what it means and all that. And so, uh, this morning I want to talk about some practical aspects of discipleship before we get to those practical aspects of discipleship, though, I want to give us a simple definition, a working definition of discipleship that we can kind of hang on to for our discussion this morning. Okay. And this, the uh, definition that I want to give us basically uh, is that discipleship means learning from and following Christ. At its very essence, it means learning from and following Christ. Of course, following Christ has implications for absolutely every aspect of life. It's far-reaching. It means a lot of things. But for our definition, what we want to focus on this morning is that it is learning from and following Christ, or it might mean helping someone else to learn from and follow Christ. Discipleship means that as well, okay? So that's our definition. Now, for our discipleship DNA, I want us to open up to the Great Commission, if we would, Matthew 28. We're going to be here for a little bit, and then in one other passage, mainly for the morning. The DNA of discipleship. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Normally, we quote 19, 19 through 20. If someone were to ask you what the Great Commission is, you might 
might be tempted to quote 28, 19 through 20, but it really starts in, in verse 18. And what I want us to notice this morning in regard to uh, discipleship DNA is that it, the Great Commission begins and ends with Jesus. Begins and ends with Jesus. Jesus says, okay, so, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, like I said, we're most familiar with 19 and following, right? That's, that's normally the part we quote. And frankly, we're most familiar with uh, 19 and then the beginning of 20. We're most familiar with the part that's up to us to do. Go and make disciples, baptize, teaching, right? Those sorts of things. That's what I think of when I think about the Great Commission. I'm familiar with what I'm supposed to do, but notice that Jesus begins and he ends his final message to his disciples as recorded in, in the gospel of Matthew with himself and what he's accomplished. He starts with what has already been accomplished. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that is because of what he's accomplished on the cross and with the empty tomb. He's finished his mission. He's paid the horrible and incalculable price for our sin. He's appeased the wrath of God and is about to take his seat at the right hand of his father on his heavenly throne. That's where he starts the Great Commission, what he's accomplished. And then he talks about go and make disciples, right? So he starts with what he has done, what he has done. And then he concludes the Great Commission at the end of it with another reference to himself. What does he say? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's now present with us. He, he's, he's with us right now, present with us in the person of his spirit who lives inside of every believer. That's an amazing thing. So he starts the Great Commission, which I normally think of as my marching orders. He starts that with a reference to what he has accomplished, and he ends it with a reference to the fact that he will be with me. That's bookends to the whole thing, is what he has done. So the DNA of discipleship, therefore, its most basic and defining essence is the gospel. It's the gospel. It is inextricably linked to what Jesus has accomplished for us and what he will accomplish in us by the work of his spirit in our lives. God wants us to live in light of the gospel. That is, he wants us to be disciples. And he also wants us to go and teach others to live in light of the gospel. That is, he wants us to go and make disciples. So that's the DNA of discipleship is the gospel itself. So with that DNA of the gospel in mind, let's look at some of the practical aspects of discipleship. How do we do it? How do we go about it? What does it look like? All right, so point number one here, we start our outline, is submit to a teacher or mentor. Now, some of you who are really on the ball might recognize this as a small portion of an outline from Father's Day. 
I know that's a long time ago, right? Even like a couple of months, right? But maybe you'll remember it. But this is a small portion of it. I wanted to expand on it a little bit today. The first aspect, the first step, the first part of discipleship is submitting to a teacher, submitting to a mentor, someone who's going to lead us to Christ, someone who's going to take Christ's hand in our hand and, in a sense, put them together. It involves submission to a teacher or a mentor. And so I was thinking through the Bible, and I was thinking, well, where do we see this in Scripture? Anywhere? Well, we see it all over the place. Think about Moses and Joshua. Joshua was his helper, his servant, ends up being the leader, right, after Moses passes away. Next, you have Elijah and Elisha. You have the shifting of the mantle from one to the other that happens there. You have one, Elijah, mentoring Elisha. Of course, in the Gospels, that among other things that's going on in the Gospels, you have Jesus calling his 12 disciples and then discipling them, investing in their lives. They submit to him, and then he commissions them, sends them out to go and do the same thing. Do the same thing that he has just done, go and do with other people. And then, of course, later on in the book of Acts, in our small group, we're studying through the book of Acts, so it's on the front of my mind. You have Barnabas taking Paul. And teaching Paul in the early days, when Saul was a brand new believer, Barnabas is the one who's mentoring him. Barnabas is the older believer showing him the ropes. And then you have Paul and Timothy, right? Paul and Timothy. If you think about, we have two letters, first and second Timothy in the New Testament. They weren't written by Timothy. They're written to Timothy by Paul. And if you think about what's, what's written in them, you see that it's, it's really a picture of discipleship. You have Paul continuing to mentor and disciple Timothy. And Timothy, in his turn, is submitted to Paul. And so you have this relationship going on. Uh, But more specifically uh, than that, in the book of 2 Timothy, let's flip there. We're going to spend quite a bit of time here in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We have a little bit clearer picture of what's going on in this mentoring-discipleship relationship between Paul and Timothy. Okay, this is correspondence between the two. This is Paul writing a letter to Timothy, a young pastor and, and uh, believer, and, and Paul is helping him out. So 2 Timothy 3 is where we're going to be for a little bit, and we're going to start in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. He says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it knowing from whom you learned it, that there's a, there's a connection there. There's a submission by Timothy to Paul in his spiritual walk. He submitted to him. Timothy learned the faith from Paul himself and from other faithful men and women. If you think about Paul's own story, he's greatly influenced in his spiritual life by his grandmother and by his mother, who were believers. And so... He's, he's influenced in that way. He's, he's been influenced. He's submitted to these others who have been investing in him spiritually in his life. So just like Paul in his early days had been submitted to Barnabas, now you have Timothy submitted to Paul, right? So this is a key aspect of discipleship. It's not really one necessarily that I enjoy, but when I read through the Bible, I see this aspect again and again of a person, a believer, submitted to another believer who's more mature than them to take them down the road, 
I see it so often in Scripture. I think it's a pattern that's developing. We have explicit communication about it. It's apparently an important part of Christian life. And so, like I said, I don't necessarily like to submit. It's not one of my favorite things. When Steph and I were going to Russia the first time, we were with the navigators, and we had to take all kinds of tests and evaluations and all this kind of stuff. And one of them was a psychological evaluation and fill out this questionnaire. It was like 125 questions, and it took me forever. Steph whipped through it. She enjoyed it, thought it was a great time, and I just agonized over this thing because it's kind of the way I am. And so then once we submitted all that stuff, then we got together with a, with a psychologist, and she had read these tests and, and whatever. She was trying to figure out how our team dynamics were going to work, and I, I don't know what all was going on. But something very interesting she said about both Steph and me is that we're both rebellious. I thought, me? Rebellious? No way. No way. I'm the, you know, I'm the, I was the good student, right? I was never in trouble. You know, certainly I'm not rebellious, but I also know how to fly under the radar and stay away from trouble, though I'm not necessarily submitted in my heart. So, sorry, that was a little confession time there, but. This idea of submitting to another believer is a key part of discipleship. That's what the Lord modeled in his own ministry. And then he told his disciples to go and do the same thing, replicate this same thing that I've done with you. Go and do it with other people. So the first practical part of discipleship is for us to submit to a teacher. Second aspect is learn conviction from Jesus. Learn conviction from Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? By conviction here, I mean growing in our knowledge of the truth, growing in our knowledge of the Bible, growing in our understanding of what the Bible teaches. That's what I mean by learning conviction from Jesus. All right, pop quiz here. Do you know what the longest chapter in the Bible is? Probably a good portion of you do. Psalm 119, right? It's, it's, it's long, right? Do you know what it's committed to? you know what it's dedicated to? You think through? God's word. God's word. The longest chapter in the Bible is a celebration of God's word working in people's lives. It's a whole chapter valuing, holding up, lifting up God's word. And I, I was going to go through and you know quote some things that it says about god's word but it's very long and every single verse talks about god's word so i didn't want to quote the whole thing so as an example here psalm 119 verse 11 we all know this i've stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you that's how much he values god's word god's word conviction from scripture and in our passage if you continue reading back in second timothy chapter 3 We read verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Content, right? This is truth. This is knowledge. This is understanding of scripture, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And all scripture is profitable for teaching. So that's an aspect of it, isn't it? Knowledge of the Bible, understanding what this, what Scripture says, is a key aspect of discipleship. It's an important part of what's included 
in our own growing and following after Christ, coming to know him better, is knowing his word. Now think about, we read the Great Commission earlier. We talked about the Great Commission. Think about the aspects of our mission that we've been given there. Go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Teaching them. So teaching is a key part. It's not the only part, but it's a key part of discipleship, learning and understanding God's word. So we've defined discipleship simply as learning from and following Jesus, and an enormous part of that process is studying and learning God's word, the Bible. Learn conviction from Jesus. Thirdly, learn competency from Jesus. Learn competency. We learn how to minister to others by looking at Jesus' own ministry. He teaches us how to minister to other people. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus was walking along. He walks by Peter and Andrew, a couple of fishermen. He calls out to him, and what does he say? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. He was offering to give them a new passion and to train them for a new line of work. He was going to give them new skills, new competency. He was going to teach them how to become fishers of men. He was going to train them to be apostles, train them to be evangelists, train them to be ministers, ambassadors of the kingdom of God. He was going to train them to do that. That involves new skills, knowing how to do new things. And in today's passage, verse 17, if you look at it, tells us that one of the goals and proper uses of Scripture is to make believers complete or competent, equipped for every good work. Complete, competent, equipped, prepared for every good work. This word competent, which sometimes is translated complete, means fit, capable, sufficient, able to meet all demands. Fit, able to meet all demands. A couple of, uh, maybe a month ago, a little more, I decided it would be a great idea to go run something called the Tough Mudder. And the Tough Mudder is a 10 or so, 10 or 11 mile obstacle course that in our area takes place at North Tahoe and at North Star Resort. And so um, it starts at elevation of maybe 6,500 feet roughly and goes up to 8,600 feet and then back down. It's 10 miles long. And obstacles all over the place. It was a blast. Okay, it was a ton of fun. I had a, had a great time. I questioned my sanity a few times in there about mile six and mile eight and things like that. But I noticed I, I was relatively fit for the thing, right? I wasn't in tip-top shape to be able to do it, but but we did fine, and, and I didn't feel like I was incapable of completing the task. But about mile three, we'd been running uphill for all three miles. About mile three, we started seeing people who looked like they hadn't spent a whole lot of time in the gym in preparation for this, sitting beside the way, leaning under a tree, huffing and puffing, right? Red face, you know, trying not to pass out. And so we stop and talk to them, make sure they're okay, see if they need a medic, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. And and so, uh, but they said, no, they were fine. And, and um, well, not fine, but they weren't going to die right there. They probably shouldn't have started the race is what they were really thinking, right? They weren't really fit to do this thing. It wasn't a small task. 
This wasn't, you know, this wasn't a 5K fun run. This was a big deal, and it was in the mountains. And a lot of people had come over from California where they started at elevation, you know, 400 feet, and here they started at 6,500 and running up to 8,600. They were dying, right? They weren't really prepared. They weren't really equipped. They weren't really competent. We didn't think they were capable of performing uh, the service. And uh, they weren't able to meet all demands. And it's interesting. The first person we saw in that state, we stopped and chatted with a little bit because we were kind of concerned about her. And she, uh, you know, told us that she was going to be fine. And, and so we took off running. And, well, we finished the thing three and a half hours later. That's how long it took to finish the race. And after we finally wandered our way back around and kind of got, you know, um, rested a little bit enough to walk to the car to drive home, we saw her sitting in her car. We thought, wow, she's fast. She finished the same time we did, and we passed her up. She said, no, she was done. She quit right where we were. She she wasn't able to meet the demands. And uh, this verse says here that Scripture is able to make believers complete, competent, prepared, fit for action. It also says Scripture is able to equip us for every good work. Completely outfitted is what equipped means. Have, having everything you need to accomplish it, right? Fully furnished, fully supplied to be able to meet it. Capable of performing the service expected, right? You've got a job. It takes certain tools to do the job. You're equipped to do it, right? Well, so another story of us in the mountains, me in the mountains. We decided, my family did last, uh, two weeks ago, I guess it was, that we would go hiking out at, uh, at the dens. Had a great time, enjoyed it. It was wonderful. We were in shorts, Okay, which is okay, except for the stinging nettles everywhere. And we found out pretty quickly what, what they look like and what they feel like. We weren't equipped. We didn't have the outfits that we needed. We probably should have had long pants on, right? But we didn't have those. We were in shorts kind of trying to weave our way through there. We weren't really prepared for it. We performed the task pretty much. We got out alive, but we didn't make it to our goal because... Lousy stinging nettles were everywhere, and I had them stinging in my legs for hours afterwards, right? So we weren't really prepared. Our passage here says that Scripture is able, it is sufficient to make us equipped, to equip us for the task that God has for us. We don't have to be unfit. We don't have to be unprepared for ministry or for the Christian life in discipleship. The Bible is profitable and able to make us fit, to prepare us, to equip us to meet the demands of ministry. Now, this is where it's very helpful to have someone, an older believer, come along with us and teach us these things and help us to understand how all of this works. It's very helpful. For example, some of the things that are involved in the Christian life, some of the things that are involved in ministry, I didn't know how to do when I was 18. And I didn't learn how to do them just by reading Scripture. Maybe some of you have, but I didn't like how to pray. I had no idea, literally had no idea how to pray. I had no idea how to read and study God's word. I didn't know how to apply God's word, had no idea. And so I needed someone to help me along, someone to walk with me through that. I had zero idea how to share my faith with other people. I couldn't articulate it. I didn't know how to do it in such a way that it would be understandable by someone hearing me. It took someone helping me, someone showing me how to do that. This person who's showing us how to do these things, these ideas don't come from them. Someone who's mentoring us, 
the ideas aren't coming from them. What they're doing is they're taking their own Christian life, their own experience of God's word, their own understanding of God's word, and they're taking you and saying, look, here it is, and here's how it works. Here's how this thing works. It's not just them coming up with it out of their minds, right? Proper discipleship stems from this because this is what is adequate and able to complete us, to equip us. And so it's very helpful to have someone walk with us, like how to encourage other people in the faith. Didn't know how to do that, wasn't real sure. Certainly didn't know how to teach people. Didn't know how to teach scripture, didn't know how to teach at all, didn't know how to share my faith, didn't really know how to serve in a church, didn't know how to give the way God would have me give. I didn't know how to love other believers the way God would have me love other believers. That's something I needed to be shown and walked through with. I didn't know how to defend the faith. Didn't know how to defend the faith. Things like that. It was very helpful when I was being taken along and shown those things in the process of discipleship. Learning competency in the Christian life and ministry is a key practical aspect of discipleship. And so is learning character. Learning character from Jesus. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's talking about a lot of things in there, and one of those is character. A key aspect is our character, our lifestyle, who we are. Listen to some other verses. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him, that is, abides in Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Okay? John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus loved his disciples. We're to love one another in the same way. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. Imitate me as I'm an imitator of Christ. So there's obviously a very clear connection between discipleship, growing and following after Christ, and walking in obedience to him, walking as he walked, imitating him as the word Paul uses. We learn our character from Jesus. We see what it means to love people. We see what it means to endure under hardship. We see what it means to deal with conflict. We see character. We learn character from Jesus' life. Now, this is difficult because... My character does not match up to his character. And I see pretty clearly where my character doesn't match up to his character, sometimes more clearly than others. And so what, what do I do with that? Well, that's, a, that's a big question, and that's an enormous part of discipleship, is learning yourself how to deal with that. How do you answer that question? How do you solve that problem? How do you live in the light of that? The fact that my character doesn't match his character, but he says that my character should match his character. Well, where I fall short, what's that called? Sin, right? And that's not okay, but it's forgivable, and he forgives me. Uh, Let let me see if I can clear this up a little bit. We were working, while we were uh, with some friends of ours in Chicago, we were working with a church plant there, and our friends had had several children, and their oldest son is a couple years older, several years older than Brianna, and so at the time... Uh, he was probably seven, maybe eight. 
and something happened. Someone wronged him, very clearly wronged him. I saw the whole thing happen, and I saw this little boy get wronged, and it was very obvious, right? And so he was angry at his brother or whoever it was that caused this, caused this problem, and I was trying to solve the situation. I was trying to calm things down, and I was trying to work through it. And so what I said to him was, it's okay. He said, it's not okay. Because he did whatever it was. He hit me, or he ran me over, or he yelled at me, or whatever it was, right? It's not okay. And I appreciated that. It's difficult when you're talking to an eight-year-old and they correct you and they're right. But he was, right? It's not okay. What I meant was, let's calm down. We can deal with this and solve this problem. What he thought I meant was, it's fine for so-and-so to mistreat you, right? So I thought that was a, a pretty clear way to look at that. It's similar in this regard. Is it okay that my character doesn't match up with Jesus? No, it's not okay. Right? It's not okay. Can the problem be dealt with in the big picture? Can it be solved? Yes, it can. There's forgiveness in Christ. And there's another verse I want us to remember, Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember how the Great Commission finished? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His spirit lives within us, right? He brings about change from within, change from within our hearts that brings about obedience and change in our lives. It's a very difficult issue, and we deal with it every day. I deal with my heart not being lined up every day. And it's not okay, And as in the status quo is, is fine, Right? But the problem is not insoluble. We can fix this. That's probably not the right word. Unsolvable maybe is what I meant. This problem can be fixed, okay? And it is God's spirit working in our lives from within to bring about obedience in our lifestyle. This is a major part of discipleship. This isn't a clear thing that appears to you the day you become a Christian to understand how this process works. And it's difficult. Every time sin rears its head in my life, I wrestle with this very thing. I'm supposed to be obedient. I want to be obedient, but I'm not obedient. Is that okay? Well, no, it's not okay, but God can deal with it. God can work in my life, and he can solve this problem, right? And something I'm reminded of by a friend regularly is that when God looks at us, because of what Christ accomplished that he talks about at the beginning of the Great Commission, what Jesus accomplished on the cross and with the empty tomb, when he looks at us, he sees a forgiven and righteous person if we're in Christ. That's what he sees. He sees Christ's righteousness on me. And so I'm, I'm completely forgiven. I'm completely righteous in his sight. Now, I could go on and, and on about this, This is a big part of discipleship, learning how to walk with this tension, that we learn our character from Jesus, but it's not a quick fix. Not a quick fix. Discipleship is not just a gathering of biblical information and skills for the Christian life. It necessarily involves transformation of character. Following Jesus includes learning what he taught and how to minister to others, but another essential aspect is becoming like him in our character as well. Fifthly, find and teach other disciples. Find and teach other disciples. 
Now, this truth is hinted at in our passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy is a young pastor. He's passing this on to other people, and Paul is saying, be sure you pass that on. Uh, this is what I have shown you. You're to show other people. I have passed on Scripture to you and taught it to you. Hold fast to it. Teach it to other people. It's implicit in there. But it's explicit if you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, it's not just hinted at, it's very explicit. Let's start in verse 1. You then, my child, again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's very explicit there. Paul passed on information, taught, discipled Timothy. He's telling Timothy to pass that on to other people. Teach, disciple, train, work with other people who will then pass it on to yet a fourth group, a fourth generation. It's explicit. This is supposed to be an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. I love the four generations that are captured in that, that one little place. Paul and then Timothy and then others who are going to teach it to other people still. So this is, this is a great verse uh, for us to remember, for us to remind ourselves of. Second Timothy 2, 2. But think also back about the Great Commission. It's kind of where we started our day, right? The Great Commission. This is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. He's very shortly about to go back to heaven. He's speaking to his disciples for the last time in that book. And he says, look, I've just spent three and a half years investing in you guys. I have taught you. I've trained you. I've worked on your character. I've been with you. I've accomplished these things, right? I'm about to leave. I want you to take this and go and make disciples. Go and do just what I've done with other people. Very explicit there. And so... If my own discipleship, if your own discipleship, and if the discipleship of our church does not include finding and teaching still other disciples, then our discipleship is not the discipleship that Jesus had in mind. The discipleship he has in mind explicitly includes passing it on to other people, finding other disciples and teaching them So let's look at our five points that we've talked about. First of all, submit to a teacher. Learn conviction from Jesus. Learn the word. Learn competency from Jesus. Learn how to live the Christian life. Learn how to minister. Learn character from Jesus. Find and teach other disciples. Now, most of us are, I'm sure, familiar with two, three, and four. When I think of discipleship, that's what pops into my head, two, three, and four. Right away. Those are the things that I need to learn. We have some experience with those. Now, one in five, however, may be a little more sketchy. They may be a little sketchy in your own mind, right? Uh, Steph pointed out to me after a men's panel that Chris Ward and Dale White and I were involved uh, in with the MOPS program this, this last year. And so we three gentlemen got to be in the hot seat 
sitting up front being asked questions by a, a room full of young moms, right, who had all kinds of questions. And we were glad there was a moderator, and we were glad that there were people, you know, pouring through the questions and, and whatever to protect us because it was a hot seat. It was a lot of fun. We enjoyed that. I think all three of us enjoyed that, and, and uh, you could see the different personalities and, and all that kind of stuff coming out. But what's, what Steph pointed out to me later on was that each of us had been discipled by the same man, by Bob Burroughs. At some point or another, to a certain degree or another, we had been discipled by Bob Burroughs. And more than that, each of us has had some involvement with discipling other men. And so I thought that was an interesting thing, just thinking about that group that I don't know how that group was chosen, but, but it was kind of a, an interesting thing for, for me to note. And I, I think each of us would say that our lives have been deeply impacted by having been discipled and by discipling other people, as well as two, three, and four, learning conviction, competency, and character from Jesus. Our lives have been impacted in a big way. It's a big part of who we are as Christians. We've been focusing in our preaching this summer on discipleship, on being disciples, on making disciples. And that's because the elders have been struck more and more over this past year that we need to be putting our efforts and our energy and our time into being and making disciples. That's what we need to be doing. Jesus could have given any commission he wanted to his disciples at the end. His final instructions could have been, go and plant churches. But that's not the Great Commission. His final instructions could have been, go and love your neighbor. We know that's an excellent thing. That's an essential thing, but that's not the Great Commission. He could have said, go and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment, but it's not the Great Commission. These are all things that he wants us to do. These are all essential things, but they are not the Great Commission. The Great Commission that he did leave us with is go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Go and duplicate with other people what I have done in your life. That is the Great Commission. That is the last command that he gave. That is the instruction that he, that he leaves us with. And so our challenge here and the challenge that I have for you this morning is what about your own discipleship? What about your own growth as a disciple, becoming more and more a disciple of Christ? Maybe that could be improved in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship with someone. Maybe you could identify someone, an, an, an older believer, someone who is farther down the road in their walk with Christ, and you could go to them and say, I, want, I, I would love it if you would disciple me if you would walk with me and teach me how to learn from and follow Christ. Or maybe, maybe you're the one that needs to go to someone else and, and offer to disciple them and work in their lives. You see how each of these is a little bit difficult. It's hard for me to go and submit to someone. That's tough. It's also difficult for me to go and tell someone, hey, I want to show you how this is done. That's not easy for me. But both are, are essential aspects. That's, that's the beginning and the end of the thing. It's, it's, it's key. That's in, that's in 2 Timothy 2, too. So maybe a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship is, is uh, what you need to seek out. That very well could be, and I, I wish that would happen more. I wish that would happen more. I had a, a conversation with a young couple this week about, about these exact things, and I thought this is the best thing to happen 
in, in these people's lives is to be discipled and grow in their walk with Christ in a one-on-one relationship. Or maybe, like it, like it was for me when I was a brand-new believer, maybe it's a small group discipleship setting. There were, it started out as like four, well, probably started out with more like two high school guys who were being discipled by Bob, and then more guys kept getting saved and being added to the group. That's a real problem to have, right? We kind of outgrew Bob's office. That's an excellent thing to have happen, right? And so it ended up being like six or eight of us being discipled. And so uh, we grew in major, major ways. And so maybe, maybe what you need is to find a discipleship group or form a discipleship group like that where, where uh, you can grow together with a teacher. You can have someone walk with you as a group and learn to grow in following Christ. Or maybe you're someone who needs to start that. Maybe you're someone who needs to gather a group of people and start working and discipling with them. I challenge us to do this. This isn't just something to talk about on a Sunday morning. This is Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. This is what should occupy our thinking. This is what should occupy our planning, is doing this. This is the commission that he gave us. Evangelism is another way to make disciples. If you think about literally making a disciple, taking someone from being from not being a disciple to being a disciple, a follower of Christ, that's the process of, process of evangelism. And I'm challenged by that. I need to be talking to people. I need to be opening my mouth when there's opportunity. I need to be looking for opportunity and taking that. I try to take that opportunity as much as I can. Evangelism is a key part of disciple making. We're not just going to disciple each other forever, right? And then, and then that's, that's completing the Great Commission. That's not. The Great Commission is to go and disciple other people, make disciples, take people who are not disciples and make them disciples. And something I thought of this morning that hit me hard is parenting is discipleship. Parenting is discipleship. I, I have the unique responsibility of, of being working with the youth. I love working with the youth, and uh, except when I get injured from trying to, trying to be a youth because I'm not a youth. I find, I find that out occasionally. And I love that discipleship relationship that I can have there. I, have, I, I get to meet with guys one-on-one. I get to disciple in a group and things like that, and I love those things. But I also think when I go home and I've got my high schooler at home, I think I need to be discipling her, and I need to be discipling all of my children. That's what parenting is. That's what parenting is. And the responsibility of discipling, of raising our children as disciples and working with them falls on the parents. That's a parental responsibility. In, in an ideal world, my job would be unnecessary as a youth pastor. I know it's not an ideal world, but it would be unnecessary because you would be doing such an excellent job of discipling your own children that it might be fun to get together and do stuff with youth, right? But it wouldn't fall on me to disciple your children because you've done such a thorough job. So all of us as parents need to remember that. It is our responsibility to be discipling our children. That that means some changes in my schedule. That means bedtime is going to look a little bit different. That means evening is going to look a little bit different, or maybe breakfast time. I need to be opening God's word and teaching it to my children, right? I need to be teaching them how to share their faith. I need to be working in a godly and biblical way on their character. I need to be discipling them. I need to be encouraging them to share their faith, to be making disciples. That's the, 
That's the primary responsibility of discipling children is it falls on their parents. Now, that's another major topic. But in this regard, it is essential. It is essential. And so I, I challenge you parents, and I'm on the receiving end of that also. We need to be discipling our children, not just raising them to be obedient, not just preparing them to be successful. Those are important things. Not just insisting upon conformity to rules. Not just making sure they're nice or they look nice or they don't hit each other. Those are all good things. They're all good things. But the central focus should be discipling them, raising them to be followers of Christ, well-grounded and rooted in their own right. And that's a responsibility that falls on me as a parent, and it falls on you as a parent. But remember, Jesus didn't give his marching orders and then leave the scene. He said our task is rooted, first of all, in his universal authority. And it's empowered by his abiding presence to enable us to make this happen. We're not on our own to do this. We don't have to go and conjure up ways to do this or get together and figure out new brilliant ways to do this and accomplish it in our own power. He said, I have received all authority. It's all been given to me. So go and do this. And I'm with you always to accomplish it. And that's encouraging to me because I'm not on my own. I'm not on my own to do this. You're not on your own to do this. We as a church are not on our own to do this. We praise the Lord for that. But we do need to step out and trust. He said we're not alone. I can't always tell I'm not alone. But I'm going to step out and do what he said, asking for his power, trusting him to help me out to accomplish the task that he's given me. So I want you to go away encouraged with that. When, when uh, I was looking through this passage this week, and I was look, while well, I was looking through Matthew 28, and I was so struck, I was speechless. with the, How many times have I read Matthew 28? I don't know. Many, many. And I was so struck, again, with the fact that it begins, the Great Commission begins, and it ends with Jesus. He has the authority. He tells us to go do it, and he's right there with us to do it. That's encouraging. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. We thank you that you are almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega. And we thank you that you have not left us alone to accomplish this task that's greater than us, but you've given us your spirit to live within us. You've said you're with us always, even to the end of the age, and we are not to the end of the age, and so you are still with us. And so we take great comfort and courage from that. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, embolden us to step out and do this, to be about this, to make your great commission our great mission. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to do that. Lord, we want to see you honored and lifted up this way. And we, we ask for direction, and we seek direction from you, and we pray for direction. And here we have very clear direction from your word about what we should be about. Help us to be about it, Lord. Empower us to be about it. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your abiding presence in us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.